0: I'm Steven Eron Deinhardt IV. Welcome to the Giant Lands Podcast, hosted by Amusement Sparks, with your host, Andrew Spahn. Welcome to the Giant Lands Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Spawn, and with us today is the one and only Ernest Gygax Jr. How are you doing today, Ernie?
1: I'm doing great. It's it's a wonderful day to talk games.
0: Absolutely, isn't it always? It's it's so cool that we're able to connect over something like Giant Lands. Like it's such a cool new project, but it has roots that are so so old and so rich connected with the kind of origins of the modern role playing game, which is so cool and something that your family obviously was a a big part of. I know you've got like a lot of stuff on your resume, but I was kind of curious to know um, what all kind of stuff you're up to these days.
1: At 60 years of age, I'm mostly trying to just lay back and and enjoy the time I do have. So I, I spend a lot of time with my pets. I have a lovely fiance, and then I try to game as often as I can and occasionally crank out something that's so much fun that I really want to share it.
0: That is so cool, and I also love the idea of instead of treating it like a job where you're like, I have to crank out the numbers and hit the quotas, it's like, no, this is fueled by passion, and if I didn't love this, I wouldn't be doing it, and I would just be keeping these stories internal, you know, my little friend group or whatever. So that's that's so cool. I'm glad to hear you're still enjoying the hobby, and it's not too much of, of a drag or, you know, a chore or anything like that.
1: Well, no, that's but I, I certainly get less done than than many other people cranking out the materials. Everything that I do do, I enjoy.
0: Cool. And I know you were a part of a a Kickstarter a few years ago. Can you tell us kind of about that experience? What that was like? It was hugely successful. Well, it was
1: hugely successful. And what happened is is that we got too excited on stretch goals and Mm. started promising too many items. So it got so rich that instead of concentrating on what we really already had done, we started saying, well, with this edition here, changing for this edition, now we'll add in our heraldry, we'll add in a world setting, and all this. And it is going to be good, because originally we were working on something called the Hobby Shop Dungeon, which is I created in 1978 at the Dungeon Hobby Shop, which was TSR's house organ. At that point... I saw this other fellow, Benoit Poir, who uh, was offering some free concepts with his own dungeon, and it it looked so cool, and his maps were fantastic. That I said, "What are you doing, Ben? You you could be making something out of this." And he said, "I just wanted to see my stuff in play." So then we started working together on the hobby shop dungeon, and my old levels he uh, he increased by about six hundred percent in wow. scale. So that means we have to add that many more things. (laughs) Yeah, We've got got four levels drawn out, the the concept for the fifth, and my sixth will stay the original that it was, which is probably about... It was a a four by three piece of graph paper, ten squares to the inch, filled up completely as dungeon, to give you an idea. So that'll be the the, the creme de la creme, the the final piece. But anyway... The Memorial Tomb was a Kickstarter. It is now in the capable hands of Troll Lord Games. Steven Schnault and his people are pushing it out. Everybody's got a rough draft now, which is called the beta, online only. And then it's going to be cleaned up and printed out for all the Kickstarter people. There's about 1,200 people that got into it.
0: That's so cool. And yeah, like we said, it was, it was hugely successful, like six times the funding goal or something, but it's so cool to hear your perspective on it and that uh, it's called GP adventures is your kind of collective that both the G meaning you and the, the P being Benoit, he was doing it just so that people would be using his maps and stuff and being able to turn that into something that people actually, you know, can pay for and support. And I just think that's such a cool and interesting and pure way of art Meeting commerce. I don't know. I love the kind of stuff that can come out of that work environment.
1: The only negative on that, of course, is that deadlines didn't. <laughs> years late. And it did take finally um, some professional businessmen to step in and get involved with the project. Instead of trying to fill the whole ceiling with this incredible mural, coming back and saying, oh, I've got the eye color wrong from this panel to this. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> And, and just doing all these incredible details and oh, his, it he does and he he can't sleep if he has something wrong I mean, yeah. this this influence. so i couldn't find a better creative partner
0: that is so cool i'm so glad to hear that and yeah his his work is fantastic you can see it in the art itself there's one one phrase in an in interview where you talked about that kickstarter where you kind of described it as a web of nonlinear design and that really captivated me as as a former GM and a fan of role-playing games. I don't know, it's just a really fascinating way to describe almost what it is to create a campaign or to be a you know dungeon master or a game master. And I know you like to play a lot of role playing games, but is that kind of what you like about that art form of DMing or GMing?
1: Well, see at at that point it was search, explore and destroy. And right. if you can't if you can't handle it you, you map and come back later and do whatever is necessary to be able to handle that situation. And we did that often. And I was a very good mapper. And it is, it is a, a bit of work and, and follow through. And it, it slows things down a little bit compared to just charging forward. And at some point, people started deciding that instead of having lots and lots of rooms, we're just going to have fewer rooms of more detail and go point to point to point. Back in the eighties with Flint Dilly, I did something called the Sagar the Barbarian books. And it had my dad's name on with Flint, but he didn't have the time to work on it then, so I was a ghostwriter. And they were basically Conan books with pick-a-path and a combat system
0: with hit points and experience points. So cool. I love that kind of stuff. I I, um, I did a Kickstarter actually. It was it failed, but it was in 2014. But it was largely inspired by those kind of choose your own adventure style games where it's like the benefits of of playing a tabletop role-playing game but back then I didn't think they were as popular and I thought maybe this will solve that problem or that you know that hole in people's heart when they don't get to actually play a role-playing game but nowadays luckily the culture has adopted the tabletop role-playing game and it's bigger than ever and more socially accepted than ever and I feel like it doesn't necessarily need that that kind of dumbed down type of thing that I was going for so it's it's so cool to see it become popular and be able to be a relatively mainstream thing that more and more people can enjoy every year. It's, it's such a cool hobby.
1: Well, it's been my hobby since I was just a little lad and reached up on top of a card table and grabbed a Panzer division off my dad's Stalingrad
0: game. (laughs) So I cut my (laughs) on gaming. That's amazing. Yeah. So I'm sure growing up in that, in that household was, I mean, truly fantastic and, and fascinating because it was some kind of groundbreaking stuff going on in there. That's gotta be such an interesting thing. So I'm always curious about how people do with that kind of kind of legacy or being so close to, you know, such a saint almost with wonderful points and and negatives. Some of the wonderful things were that he would uh,
1: make up stories and tell us as children before bedtime. Often, sometimes you just read stories like The Hobbit and other Grimm's fairy tales or something. But most of the time we would want stories and we each of us would feed him one concept. And then he'd have to try to take the ideas from however many children he had at the time and gel the story. Then he would do all kinds of uh, silly things like, oh, tell us a long story. And he'd say, once there was a long man who lived in a long house, (laughs) long, long town, and blah, blah, blah. Just killing space while his mind is quickly turning over these ideas to create the story to begin. And at the same time, Uh, He didn't want nepotism in the company, so when he hired me, he told me, you're going to work for my business partner, Brian Bloom, and all I've gotten you is a minimum wage job. And now at this point, everything that happens will be through him. But if you have an important thing to talk to or you have a great idea, you have the ability to come talk to the boss where no one else does. But I don't want it to be where you're complaining about some personal problem with somebody else. But he said, if you have a good idea, a good thing, and in fact as was just recently brought up that i was my dad said we want to get rid of the lizard man logo because we're now becoming more uh family oriented we need to try to figure out this new logo what do you have any concepts and then i i'd said well i saw recently on a on a commercial that cody had a cricket and they were a game company and of course toys r us and Town. they all had their different stuffed guys or whatever that would be their, their symbols. And I said, "Well, where are the magic guys? Where are the fantasy?" I said, "Where are the game wizards?" And that's what stuck. And then from there, it went through several different changes. At the end, ended up being almost a cartoon character with Morley the wizard. But yeah, that was my first cool thing. I was uh, sixteen probably then, and Dad had me put my feet up on the desk, and he got me a. Uh, and a cigar and say <laughs> stay, on, stay on the clock and now you've done you know you've you've done some incredible work here it's it's reward time
0: that is so cool and and just the the kind of business and commerce of you know people kind of technically they are maybe talking about wizards and magic a lot of their day you know while they're earning their pay which is such an interesting thing it seems like such a dream job but i'm sure there are struggles that go into that you know like any job is going to be a job it's going to require work and it's not always you know always going to feel like going in in the morning but um it's really cool to see how how you can create so many interesting works in that kind of atmosphere I, I can't even imagine doing that professionally i think that'd be such a dream but again it's like your dream is your job so now it's like well then do i need my a different dream to escape from this job i don't know
1: no we still had to ship the product out we still had to get the product we uh, um when somebody flushed uh, paper towels into the toilet system Brian and I had to go in to the- <laughs> take off a pipe and and do all kinds of silliness like any because there wasn't money to be wasted on plumbers and stuff it was a hand to mouth operation where every time we got more money we could try to put out another product to try to grow our, our product line that house on 723 William Street is now going to be made into a TSR Gary Gygax Museum. Wow, I didn't know about that. That's fantastic. And uh, Justin Lanasa bought it, and he's a fine fellow. He's already got uh, a museum of the obscure and the weird out in North Carolina. You know, he's he's quite the intelligent gamer fellow, and and after being involved in uh, the Geek Nation tour here that I'm uh, a member of, I'm like the the premier. You know, entertainment, whatever else, with Jeff Leeson and Jim Ward, and last year, um, also uh, Tom Wam, all TSR people.
0: That's awesome. It does seem like there's something kind of special going on in the Lake Geneva area. That's kind of ground zero for a lot of this stuff, right?
1: Now it is. For a long time, it was dead, and there was there's a lot of people that said it's nothing but a taffy and a fudge shop zone. And, <laughs> and it was. It was that, and right. They were fighting to even try to get anything up from my father at all. There still is not a statue. Uh, all, all there is is a large brick that we have down by the Riviera Fountain, down by the lake shore. And there's all sorts of things going on, as well as our own museum in Lake Geneva, which is only about four years old in its current location, has got a TSR room as well that they're opening up shortly. Wow. So, so yeah, from nothing, everything's coming back
0: up. Right, that's awesome, and I think it's so fascinating that you can can work in in that industry for years, and then still that's what you're dreaming about and wanting to go do on the weekends as well is to just play more of that game. You know, that's my my fear of working in in an in, in industry that like is kind of my my side project or my side hobby or like you know my passion. I feel like if I went professional, then I might need to find a new passion to do on the sides. But it seems like you've been able to dive into it deep enough or or have such an appreciation for it where it satisfies multiple parts of your life at the same time
1: well i i took a decade off at one point when when i lost my job at tsr through no fault of my own just by being a family member Mm. uh, during the hostile takeover and then i i I messed around a little bit and and played around with things that aren't very healthy but i survived (laughs) and now many many Um, girls and such later on and and experiences and I'll write a book someday and back into being more um, down to earth more fun and uh, bringing joy to people's lives
0: well yeah that that sounds great what a way to you know progress your own character you know now as you've leveled up over the years you've become you know (laughs) you go through some like dramatic tension towards the middle or whatever and then you get to be who you really you know maybe were always meant to be later in life which is that's something we can all aspire to. That is so cool.
1: One of my uh, second Greyhawk characters was Erek's cousin. And he was a magic user, gotten all the way up to 11th level. I just read the uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs books again, in particular mm. the, the Mars books. Cool. Um, and Dad uh, said, well, you know, with all this reading and such like this, and you're, and he says, you can see the the red planet is shining in the sky at night there. And he said, it seems to be unusually bright. And I did the, the thing basically like John Carter had done, sitting there staring at it and falling asleep up on my tower top. I had a um, hotel at the time, whatever. And then suddenly I woke up naked on, the, on Barsoom <laughs> in the middle of Fugor, this area filled with cannibals. And so the first thing I try to do is I try to throw like a sleep spell, you know, just picking up some dirt, whatever else, because sand would be another component. And magic doesn't work at all. So then as I as I try to run away, I fly through the air and all this stuff that like the John Carter character did. And I end up finding a big stick, jumping to the top of a tree and fighting these, um, these cannibals one at a time at the treetop so they can't get a bunch on me until I can get a sword, make it better, and blah, blah, blah. And then from wow. there... Work my way up. That's how I became a fighter magic user.
0: That's fantastic. That's such a cool combination of kind of mechanics and storytelling, you know, each informing one another.
1: I couldn't be a fighter anymore because my strength wasn't high enough. Once I was no longer on Mars. See, that's how dad stopped all that. <laughs> Went back to magic use, but so I had a, a, an interesting character because I would lots of times prep things. Like I'd throw a strength spell on my character uh, a haste, whip on some magic armor I had in my portable hole, grab a magic sword, and I'd go in hand-to-hand fighting in an encounter that I knew was something like this. And I, I might first summon some monsters as well. So I'll have some monster summoning at my side. We go in there and do that. Then afterwards, put the armor away. <laughs> Greyhawk just inspired so much. And, and my own dungeon is, is is fantastic. But my dad... Not only did he have the imagination that he's genetically passed on to me, but he also had this incredible work ethic, which mm-hmm. is sadly I'm lacking in. Um, but it, there's a reason why he put out so many works, and uh, even his uh, Gord the Rogue novels. He he really had no practice as a as a, a novel writer, but but that comes across as high adventure and excitement. So some people don't don't like it because no, he's not Fritz Leiber, but the the action comes through so much stronger than say like a, a better uh, written token that could, that could put me to sleep with the slow. Right,
0: right. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that might've evolved, you know, just from role-playing I feel like it does make you a better storyteller as far as action and making it dynamic and something different happens in every encounter instead of just, I use the same spell every time it's, you know, something's going to go wrong at some point And that makes for a much more exciting story and that's the fun of a role-playing game instead of say a video game or even a novel which is obviously not interactive is that uh things aren't always going to go your way and the way you pictured it in your head doesn't always come true and that's a good thing because it makes for a more compelling story and makes the dm a better writer and hopefully allows everyone in the group to kind of appreciate uh what they've got there because it is such a special and, and magical thing to to share a table with someone uh in that kind of gameplay setting
1: <laughs> I was just listening to a Jim Butcher interview from about two months ago, and um, he's also a Dungeons and Dragons player, though I think he's probably third edition. Hmm. So he's quite got the old school down well enough. <laughs> but that's what he does a lot with this thing, is that he's by all the flavor and energy of Dungeons and Dragons, as well as he ends his adventures in the middle of the big boss fight or whatever you're doing, and then lets the people think about everything and come back the next week to that now i don't know if i could i don't know if i could do that
0: (laughs) yeah that takes a lot of self-discipline right to not just complete it get your dessert you know right after the meal but save it oh man Uh,
1: of course it was hard enough growing up in the house with my dad and just bothering him to like dad 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 let's let's do another adventure because i was like 13 12 you know growing up so it was always around me and that's why i did get more adventures than anybody else And that's my dad had to keep on changing things by my play tests because Mm. not I would have too much time. So therefore, if I was (laughs) getting all these levels and all this, he would actually make it so it would take some game time so that other people could then play as well. So every day would be a, a day off in the game as well. But then however many days my actions took would then put me on a calendar that much farther ahead. And then right. I couldn't to play it until other people would start catching up or, you know, or real time and elapsed. Wow.
0: That is so smart. Yeah. If, if only every game designer had a child who was really, really into their game, think of how many more playtests would get done and how much better each of those games would be because you don't have to travel to conventions all over the place just to beg people to play your game. You've got someone begging you to let them play your game
1: everything was pretty much being shared by letter writing campaigns as well as occasional phone calls. But phone calls in those days were long distance and dad didn't have any money to speak of either. We mm-hmm. were even, we were even on food stamps for a while. So wow. I mean, so this was real. And then by the time uh, dad started really striking it rich, I split off from the house and went into a relationship. I still had the nice job, but again, it wasn't paying a whole lot yet. But at some point, uh, I had twenty full-time and two part-time employees, wow. covering the whole retail areas of TSR, which was the hobby shop, the mail-order business, the Role-Playing Game Association, and GenCon. We're all part of the Consumer Services Division, which I was the executive vice president of.
0: <laughs> That's pretty cool. And. I know you've also been the creative vice president, at least on the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I'm fascinated with animation and kind of how you got involved with that.
1: Dungeons and Dragons Entertainment Corporation. Well, dad had already been going out there. And as I said, he got together with Dennis Marks and they created this, this, the Bible for the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. And then they tried, they started pitching it, or Dennis really did. And then he'd call in my dad once he'd finally do the initial consultations with the different executive persons. And um, luckily, they found someone receptive at Marvel. Apparently, though I never was told it, but I've seen some some stuff where it, it might have gone to Hanna-Barbera first mm. to look at, because I've seen some Hanna-Barbera stamps on some you know talk about the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon. And then Margaret Lesh, I think, actually went from Hanna-Barbera to the Marvel people. And it was Marvel Productions, and the Marvel Productions people when they went out there, they didn't have anything nice to say about Stan Lee. He was in the other room, and uh. they, he's nothing but a figurehead. But we need something like this to to draw in the, the consumer or whatever. And I, Stan was a nice guy, and he actually gave my dad, um, you know, signed some stuff and blah blah blah. And that was nice. And then, but my job was just uh, from the fourth cartoon episode on. I had to try to keep it Dungeons and Dragons. My dad did decisions before that because they were going to have a dog for the kids. Oh, jeez. Because Scooby-Doo had je- was out. <laughs> sure. So it was going to be a, a slightly talking dog. And my dad said, well, this is a fantasy product. Let's at least make it, you know, a unicorn from the world. So, and then was it Frank Welker, I think, is the voice of uni. And, of course, it's a hated character by most of the adults now that say why did they have this stupid uni well it might have been even more stupid if we would have had a dog <laughs> no kidding
0: <laughs> yeah that could have been really really awkward because there were so many other shows I mean especially from hanna-barbera that were just kind of knockoffs of scooby-doo and you can really tell there's not a ton of substance there I'm a big fan of scooby-doo I really do like that series um, but I'm glad that Dungeons and Dragons got to maintain its independence from from that whole subgenre of animation
1: but then we had the um cloud bears or whatever uh, in a later episode and that was a direct ripoff from the star wars thing and
0: sure.
1: i think it was carl gears at the time that really had this idea and, and he was i think from from season two on he was like the big boss so <laughs> it's like okay i've got this idea can we make this work well sure i guess it doesn't do any harm it's you know it's a, it's a new thing it's not a dnd thing being perverted or whatever else. So yeah, a lot of it was give and take. I'd come to these meetings, I'd get a script, and then I'd go over it. And then very rarely did I make changes. The, the really big change I made was the one with the Nightwalker. And um, when they get to this oasis of lost souls, I, I made it into um, hook horrors from the fiend folio. My job also was to incorporate our new products of the main company into the cartoon. But my favorite episode was A City at the Edge of Midnight, I think, though. There's so many other good ones. A Dragon's Graveyard, I think, by Paul Dini. And so the cartoons were fun to work with. And it wasn't my only job, by any means. I was working on trying to create a, a game that would work in arcades, because arcades were still big then. Mm-hmm. And with arcades, basically they had the wooden shell, and then they put in um, a, a new program, for whatever you wanted to play. Well, we were talking to Universal, and we we're Universal was thinking about adding to an arcade section where you would get, like, a credit card. And then as you played along, you'd keep experience points and you'd, you'd up, just like when you're playing in your games at home. You'd keep on increasing your levels and your skills and, and facing new foes. And that would work with a card where you could go and play somewhere in San Luis Obispo and then you can go to Phoenix, Arizona, and and plug it in, and you'd be able to pick up right where you were wow. on on a, on a different machine. So I mean, there there was all sorts of things. I tried to work up a placemat for Orange Julius so that would kids- <laughs> and that all that was all done. But then um, somehow the CEO heard that we might be into demonology.
0: Oh yeah, Satanic Panic, right? And crushed that. <laughs> wow, it's fascinating that you're almost like sharing this this treasure trove that you believe in so much of, of what a role-playing game is and taking it into different industries and trying to kind of uh, negotiate what is a compromise between the original vision for Dungeons and Dragons and the thing that this company specializes in. But then you have to kind of figure out a way of adapting to their way of doing business. Like I'm sure working in animation is different than working in retail or working in conventions. You had to be kind of a jack of all trades, right? to, fit into all these different slots sounds crazy well that's the difference between conceptualizing things
1: driving things and actually doing them mm-hmm. I, you know only early on in my experiences was i hands-on mm-hmm. basically at a certain point it was finding the best people to do the best work to, that would get rewards out of it acknowledging good work chastising bad behavior you know <laughs> overseeing <Right>. you know <laughs> shepherding
0: that would be so hard, I think, to to balance between your passion and, you know, your connection to your family and your connection to the content of Dungeons and Dragons, but then also being able to be really tough. You have to be kind of a balance of, of sensitive and connected versus also kind of cold and, you know, business-like. I, I think that'd be so hard to, to bridge that gap and to be able to accomplish what you've accomplished. Like, that's, that's so cool.
1: There's failures too.
0: <laughs> well, of course, I'm, I'm sure, but I don't know of uh, you know, many other people who have, you know, completed a project for Orange Julius and then also been able to do a, a cartoon, you know, with so many amazing writers and, and voice actors involved and then also do so much with writing and coming up with, you know, role playing settings and it's really impressive to me how you've been able to keep that thing that you, you know, loved as a child through your entire career, even though you you kinda had to accomplish different tasks along the way it wasn't like you were just constantly sharpening the same sword you were just picking up a new weapon every episode you know and trying something different it's it's fantastic I'm also curious about Gygax magazine um can you tell us a little bit more about that that
1: was a a fine piece of work by another friend Jason Elliott he wanted to basically recreate the dragon magazine only not as a house organ Gygax magazine was an an incredibly fun opportunity to get together people and get all this fresh blood in for uh, everything from an adventure, from the uh, single-page dungeon contest. My brother and I both wrote several articles. I wrote a story telling about how my dad was a storyteller to us as children. And then in issue number three, uh, Ben and I, Benoit, created the... Memorial tomb, and it was just a single level, and it was just supposed to be the centerfold because other dragon magazines that had games, games from Brian Bloom, games from Tom Wom, particularly, and things like that. Uh, some wormy stuff. Uh, I think there was even a uh, backgammon board once in the center. <laughs> that's fun. That was Dave work. artwork. Uh, but now with Gygax magazine, so that's how this whole Kickstarter began because uh, Ben and I had already been working on the hobby shop dungeon for over two years mm. but because of its massive scale, we put it to the side and the memorial tomb is part of the hobby shop world. but it was wholly new generated material for the magazine on a one shot and then after that it would be ours. and that's that's where we're at. The primary product would be like a four level dungeon setting which actually allows from first to some probably superhero level if by the time you get through everything if you, if you
0: survive all this stuff is fascinating really like it's it's so diverse but the blood of Dungeons and Dragons still you know pumps through all of these different works which is so cool I'm curious kind of what your thoughts are between different editions of Dungeons and Dragons I've heard you use the word old school relatively often what are your your feelings on why old school RPGs might be better than some of the, you know, the new stuff.
1: Well, I don't think anything was ever broken in the first place. But of course, I was raised playing games. So I I had the experience of tabletop miniatures role playing and, and board games. So that's why there was even a basic set created back when it was only old school. And that was to allow people to be able to go into mostly Toys R Us and B. Dalton Books and these other places and without anything else but having had read fantasy and science fiction, that they could pick this up and, as young people, figure out a way to play. And that's why there was modules. In the very first Dungeons & Dragons, there were no modules. The idea was start drawing your own. Use your own mind, and this is a chance for you to open up your, you know, the realms of your own imagination. And then at some point, we started to see as well as a lot of people just didn't have the time that not everybody's imagination is uh, equal (laughs) or it's creative and and old school Dungeons and Dragons is only as good as the dungeon master or the game master. So uh, that that's part of the reason why I believe new additions have come up. Uh, There was maybe going to be some more changes made and my dad was doing it with like unearthed arcana and other things which also was forced out too quickly on Earth Arcana mm. was a desperate move by my dad to try to get some cash back into TSR when uh, his business partners had helped run into the ground. So it, it should have been polished more, but it, it was filled with good ideas that, that needed a little bit more cleaning up. So second edition came along and a sad part of that is that my dad was collecting a healthy royalty fee from the company. And he was not the majority stockholder, but he was close. And with this money he was getting paid, it was looking like if they ever wanted more money, he would be able to buy in and become the controlling factor. And that wasn't sought after by the Bloom family. At that point, they started creating second edition with somewhat of the concept that as long as you change more than 10% of the material, it is a new work and therefore not entitled to royalties
0: Hmm. so
1: so as nice and as creative as zeb cook is he was hired to kind of uh peel away you know some of my dad's treasures and stop that move so you know it's a mixed bag so again right there i have less feel for it third edition i think is pretty much like going home and playing your computer games it's Mm -hmm. all. Detail and data, and it gets away from the idea of imagination, and it's more hard. Fourth, I never tried, and it doesn't have a good stigma. I played Castle and Crusades, which is done through Troll Lords, and that's pretty much taking some of the old first edition and throwing in some of the factors from Third and all that, and putting it in a bag. And so it's fun, not quite as much fun I think as First, and certainly easier to play meaning that the dm has to create more difficulty or whatever the way Dungeons and dragons is set up is that it's a challenge and a reward now sometimes with challenge ratings and all this now there isn't a real challenge it's this will be your reward for doing this kind of work it's almost like punching your clock
0: right it's predictable and safe and yeah
1: Rob and I once went down to some place and we got caught in a slide and went down uh, to like the sixth level and we were only fourth level guys and on the sixth level, you should be like eighth level anyway, (laughs) only a couple of you. So anyway, we're down here running away from black puddings, finding secret doors, opening them up where there's dragons, though we find treasure rooms. We have this incredible time. We somehow survive after lots and lots of stuff, and we and we get enough treasure to go up to fifth level and almost sixth level from this, but it was like, shoo! big, there was another level dad had that had gi- a giant bowling alley where, you know, you get down and there's this, there's this ditch beside here and you get down in the ditch, you hear this rumbling noise and if you <laughs> stay in the ditch, this big old boulder runs you over. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was, there was were tigers on, on on chains that were being by these giant guards that said they could find you if you're invisible, etc. There was um, a wizardress, an evil wizardress that ran the place that I magic jarred into once for a while and had control. There was all kinds of fun things. I just can't say how much fun there was in this game, and I'm never going to run out of stories to share. The idea is that it's not just like opening up a book and right. closing it. It's... Okay, I went left. What happens when I go right? What happens if I go forward and then turn right? Uh, What happens in this part? Now we know we can kill these kind of creatures, but why are these creatures here? Is there some way we can maybe talk to them and see if they have enemies too? All the Dungeon Master does is he creates a scenario with options. It's uh, like going to a buffet. And the players then pick and choose what part of the buffet they're gonna experience. So that means generally that unless you have lots and lots and lots of time and ability, you're going to not go into as, as high a detail on the small items of everything, but you're gonna have a wide spread of options out there. And then you're gonna use your own mind and fill it in with the players as the adventure progresses. My dad would have something in, in a room where he'd say, there's gonna be a trap on a treasure chest, There's going to be a fireball wand somewhere and and things are going to be hidden. And that'd be like all of his notes. And uh, and then from there, he'd somehow create this incredible thing in this room. So it was paragraphs instead of pages. So again, it was only as good as the Dungeon Master.
0: Absolutely. And do you prefer to be a player or be a Dungeon Master yourself? Because I know you're a big fan of the game.
1: Well, I prefer to be a player... In a game that's got a good Dungeon Master.
0: Do you have a favorite Dungeon Master of all time?
1: Well, yeah, as silly as it sounds, my dad. um, Dave Arneson was fun. Rob Koontz was very good. Now, someone who's fantastic, but not Dungeons & Dragons, or at least so much, because I don't think when he played a couple games with him ever DMing, but his Metamorphosis Alpha... Jim Ward. Fantastic. Mm. A good game of Dungeons & Dragons is difficult to survive. Right. The world. But Metamorphosis Alpha, the odds are 60-40 you're going to die. Generally. Uh, at least. Well, to begin with, Jim would start us as barbarians with a, a tortoiseshell shield and a wooden spear. You know, and then off we are running into robots and things. <laughs> so... Jim Ward is an excellent dungeon master, or game master. Um, I had a lot of fun in the old, old days with some of the guys from Game Designer's Workshop with a game called On Guard that I got mm. to play. They were just testing that. and That was, shoot, 70s again. <laughs> Brian Bloom ran a real good game of uh, Boot Hill. Uh, Dave Arneson did a real good Napoleonic-level Diplomacy kind of game with some fighting, and then Jeff Perrin went on to do a bunch of that. Jeff Perrin was with chainmail as well as many other things he was he was part of the dungeon hobby shop he's still around he once in a while gets to go to a convention, but he's now down to only one leg diabetes mm. is, is really wicked on gamers yeah. Those about to be sedate and sit around and not move enough you know there's the the body has its own paybacks for for not
0: for not functioning like you should right it's scary well thank you so much ernie for being on the show it's been so cool i love taking in your energy you're so animated and so lively and so passionate it's just great to see that your journey has left you in such a joyous place you know i could i could see how you'd be be tired of talking about dungeons and dragons after you know an entire lifetime but obviously you've got a lot more adventure in you still which is fantastic it's really cool to, to have you on the Giantlands podcast. Like, this is awesome to have you on here. If our audience wants to learn more about you, is there a good, uh, a good website or a place they can find more about, about what you're working on?
1: I still use old-fashioned
0: Facebook. <laughs> Ernie Garrett, Gygax Jr. on Facebook. And you go to some local conventions.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, Gen Con, Gamehole Con, um, Concinity Con, these are all within 75 miles. I'm not someone who's going big on the uh, online conventions. I'll probably do a few just talks like this with people yeah. that way. But but I, I want to save the gaming for face-to-face wherever possible. So I, we have a lot of gaming here in Lake Geneva. There's the Geek Nation RPGA retreat. It's basically gaming camp for six days and five nights. And you get to play with Jim Ward, Ernie Gygax, Jeff Leeson, and others. Uh, Tomb of Horrors is just one of the first things that we open up with before we go into our own dungeons and things.
0: That is so cool. And and like we've been saying, like it's so much about the people you surround yourself with at the table. So it does seem like Lake Geneva is the place to be, right? There are so many people who are true masters of the craft there playing the game still, you know, today. Like, that is so fascinating. And I really got to get up there and try this out. It sounds fantastic. Together... I hope we can find new places within the imagination where we can grow and expand our understanding of what it means to be human.